Hey there, and welcome to The Exam Room. I'm your host, Brian Vardabedian of 33 Charts. So in this episode, I had the chance to sit down with Dr. C.T. Lin, and he is the CMIO of the University of Colorado Health System. And so we caught up on the new Cures Act final rule, and as you probably know, this is the new law that mandates that doctors and health systems release labs and notes to patients starting November 2nd, 2020. So we talked about how this is going to change doctors and patients, most likely for the better. And then tapping into Dr. Lin's deep experience in healthcare IT, I cornered him on why doctors are so down on the EHR and how that might change in the years ahead. This is a timely discussion with one of the nation's leaders in health IT and no transparency. I hope you enjoy. Dr. C.T. Lin, welcome to the exam room. Thanks. So I think this is probably the first time we formally talked. Um, I think I was going to come to Denver to talk to your hymns group in the spring, but the world imploded, and so uh, here we are. That's right. So tell us a bit about yourself and what you do. I know you're the CMIO at University of Colorado. Is that right? Uh, that's right. Uh, formerly, I'm this chief medical information officer for UC Health. You know, there's three UC Healths, but we're, we're, we're the real one in Colorado. Okay. And uh, and we're an organization that's uh, 12 hospitals, about uh, 900 clinics, about 6,000 physicians. And uh, I, I, took, I took this job uh, in 1997 as uh, I started uh, as a chief complainer, and uh, they decided to make me part of the problem mm-hmm. um, and uh, never looked back. So you have a blog called The Undiscovered Country. What is that, what is that reference? How did you get that name? Yeah, it's a little bit of a Shakespeare reference, uh, you know, the undiscovered country, which is, of course, death. Uh, but that's not the main point. The undiscovered country talks about sort of our hopeful future and where we're going forward with. And I feel like the field of informatics in healthcare really is sort of the future vision of um, what healthcare will evolve to, the managing of information. That's a great. Uh, it's a great read, by the way. A lot of great links there, um, and it's. Uh, the address is what's ctlin.blog, is that it? ctlin.blog, yes. Very good. And you must be crazy busy right now, right? There's a lot a lot going on. Uh, yes. Uh, our latest uh, uh, big push is the information blocking rule uh, from the feds, uh, in addition to managing the resurgence of COVID, uh, in addition to our usual business of managing the electronic health record and trying to reduce burnout among physicians. So for the uninformed, the, the, the 21st Century Cures Act uh, is a bipartisan law that was passed in 2016 that includes a whole lot of stuff. The Cures Act final rule mandates two things, being November 2nd, and correct me if I'm wrong, that is the release of clinical notes and lab studies to patients. Is that correct? Uh, that's right. Okay. Well, Take me to school on lingo here. There's there's so many words uh, floating around on Google search around this. When we talk about the the open notes and the uh, release of studies and labs, do you call that final rule or what do you call that? Cures rule? Uh, yeah. Uh, internally, we're calling it our information sharing project, referencing the fact okay. that uh, it's a poorly named information blocking statute, right? So it's kind of the inverse the name is, is that uh, the feds are saying that um, the, the, those outside of healthcare are accusing healthcare providers of blocking information, uh, that we're delaying or preventing the release of 
the patient's medical information to other involved parties or to the patient themselves. Um, and very interestingly, our uh, legal department misunderstood the intent of the rule when I talked to them first a few months ago and they said, well, I don't think there's much for doctors to do. This is, has to do with interoperability and uh, programming interfaces. No, this is actually releasing information to patients in real time, progress notes and test results. And it's a massive cultural shift for us, which um, which is kind of an eye-opener for a lot of folks. Yeah, I think this is really an historic step in patient access. And I think it's really going to forever change the way we see information and its relationship to patients. Yeah, I actually, I give a talk called, Is This the End of Secrecy in Healthcare? This, this is a talk I've given for the past couple mm. of years because we at UC Health have been pushing for information transparency to our patients for quite some time. And I, I tried to make the analogy that, uh, well, first of all, what we try to do at UC Health is when we innovate, we try to look outside of healthcare for our examples. And in this talk, I sort of talk about um you know, what if healthcare had something like Travelocity or Expedia or Instagram mm-hmm. or, or a Wikipedia? What, what would we look like then? Um, because we're so exceptional that healthcare is so, so different. And, you know, I, I think this has a lot to do with that. Uh, open notes and our notes and other projects have a lot to do with sharing information on the internet and allowing pieces of useful data to cross-pollinate to other areas. And wouldn't it be great if patients could, for example, take some of the information from the healthcare provider and use it in another app that helps provide them more information? There was there was an example a few years ago. Uh, I think um, Microsoft Health Vault was actually promoting the idea that if we could only release patients' med lists and vital signs to their platform, they could, for example, engage the American Heart Association to write an app that would say, Knowing your limited parts of your past history, the medications you take, and your vital signs, we should be able to generate JNC5, Joint National Commission, you know, version 5, or now it's version 9, of blood pressure recommendations that you could print out and take back to your doctor. Mm-hmm. Ask, why am I not on an ACE inhibitor, right? My blood pressure is not under control. I'm only on a single agent. And it says here that after digesting my information, there's a customized recommendation for me that I should be on an ACE inhibitor. So what does that mean? And allowing patients to be part of that conversation, I think it was sort of a transformative idea. And I think the information blocking rule gets at that possible opportunity for patients to participate in that way. Yeah, I think you bring up this point about finding solutions outside of healthcare. I think that so many of the problems we face in healthcare, even beyond informatics, have been solved in the consumer space. Uh, So I think that's a a great point. Let me ask you about this. The, the news surrounding cures rule, if we call it that, or information blocking rule, um, I find it staggering how few health professionals truly understand uh, what's about to happen on November 1st. Am I, am I alone in thinking this or am I missing something? Uh, no, I, I think a surprising number of clinicians have not heard of the rule. I mean, I, I suspect people are busy dealing with the pandemic and mm-hmm. uh, figuring out how to work from home, how figuring out how to do telehealth. There's the 2020 has been sort of a top turvy year and this is sort of slipping in under the radar, I think, for a lot of clinicians. I think that's true. So we're flipping our notes forward if we just talk about open notes uh, on November 2nd, and you actually bring a great deal of experience to the table given your history with uh, no transparency. With another large system who is who's taken this step or will be taking this step on November 2nd, Tell me about how this is received by doctors. The first impression is this is, this is going to be 
this is a huge shock for doctors, right? Are there steps that systems go through or medical staff go through when they start to open their notes? Um, I'll start by telling you a brief cautionary tale of my personal history. Um, we, we started researching um, open notes before it was called open notes back in 2001. We did a project called Faro, wow. uh, system providing patients access to records online. A very bad spelling of S-P-P-A-R-O. And in fact, if you Google it, you'll still find our project. We published it in about 2003, um, where in a cardiology practice, we recruited 100 patients and gave them full access, randomized control trial. Half of the patients got full access to the entire medical record. That was progress notes, test results, pathology, radiology results, everything in real time. And then the other half got sort of regular care, no, no change to standard of care and, uh, and studied that for a year um, and, and found that despite uh, the, the anxiety among nurses and physicians, that this would, the walls would come down and, and the the work effort would be mainly answering angry phone calls from patients who were concerned about wording and morbid obesity and disagreements about such and such. Um, that actually, we found a couple of very surprising things. One was that patients were incredibly appreciative and that we would trust them enough to show them everything. We had a, actually had one patient said, I, I don't often read my notes or the test results. That the fact that you have nothing to hide from me and that you share with me regularly means that I can trust you. And another patient said, you know, I don't understand a number of the terms, but the most valuable thing about open notes for me is I can take it to my next doctor who doesn't have access inside UC Health. And I can be the conduit of my information to coordinate my care. You know, having that is incredibly powerful. Wow. So th those are the stories that I took away from that. And then we came up with, you know, number of p-values and statistics and showing statistically significant increases in satisfaction and no change on physician and nurse workload. And I was under the mistaken to the point of uh, governance changes in a large organization. I was mistaken that taking research data and p-values to the uh, or, or to the leadership group uh, would then change their minds, thinking that these are all scientists. And of course, if I come with good scientific data, I'll change everyone's mind. This is early in my leadership career and not realizing that leadership has almost nothing uh -huh. to do with scientific values and everything to do with socio-political sort of um, understanding of how a, a large organization works. And I was actually asked to, um, thank you, that's very clever, uh, but uh, you know, you don't understand that cardiology patients are simple and my patients are very complicated, so it won't apply <laughs> to me at all. Um, and, and not having read or reread at the time Machiavelli, right? Machiavelli's The Prince has a very great quote, which I think struck me that day, which was that the reason that changing a large organization is so difficult is because at best, your proponents and advocates are lukewarm and your detractors have all the passion in the world. You know, defending status quo is incredibly mm -hmm. strong and those who are looking for change are pretty uh, weak mind, uh, weak, uh, weak supporters. Um, and so th that's what happened to me is that, uh, you know, this was a 16 year journey for me to go from our original research study 2001 to finally turning on open notes system wide in 2016, because I had to learn about leadership. Are doctors more accepting now? I mean, culturally more prepared to face open notes, perhaps this generation than 16 years ago? Yeah, I, I think so. There, there's a, um, 
in in the past decade, uh, the Open Notes Initiative, and, and if you've not been to the their website, there's a nonprofit organization called Open Notes. It's OpenNotes.org. Um, has tons of research over the past decade that they've published in terms of moving the needle on the fact that information transparency is not the the, the sky is falling, and that actually patients mm. increases adherence to therapy increases uh, patients ownership and and feeling like they're part of the care team increases. These are all positive uh, changes. So, And I think that that's gotten enough play that physicians, instead of saying, this is a crazy idea I've never heard of, they go, well, I knew it was coming for me, and it's probably time for me to jump on board. I'll echo that uh, support of the Open Notes project. And as more lingo, when we talk about Open Notes for the listeners, we're talking about notes being transparent to the patient-consumer and when we talk about the Open Notes project, Open Notes, one word, we're talking about the the collection of people like Dr. Lin who have been passionate about this and have driven this agenda forward over the past decade or so. So it is fascinating to hear this uh, that, that Open Notes is has such deep history to it. When I talk to my colleagues, they really don't quite understand this. So it's uh, remarkable to hear you talk about 16 years ago. That's really something. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and, and realizing that uh, in my growth as CMIO, the, the leadership part of that is in, was to me a completely opaque uh, area that I did not understand. Um, one of my favorite books that I recommend to colleagues who are embarking on this journey is this book called Leading Change by John Carter. I'm sure you're familiar with it, yep. where it has uh, uh, seven or eight chapters. Uh, and, and when I look at the chapter titles, I go, well, in my original open notes project where I tried to change minds and, and move the organization, I probably didn't do five out of the seven things, right? Where's your burning right. platform? Where's your guiding coalition of leaders? Where's your, you know, simple but straightforward uh, mission and vision? And how do you communicate that? And how do you celebrate the early wins? And, I, oh, gee, these, these would have been good ideas to, to apply to my project. And I would ask that colleagues who are making this major change, you know, think about uh, rereading that uh, book and, and following the principles. It's been incredibly powerful for us. Yeah, I just went through the AQI project here at uh, Texas Children's, our quality leadership training, and that's required reading. And so, yeah. um, is there any downside to Open Notes CT? Do we, I mean, can we sort of reflect on anything that may be not so good about Open Notes? Well, there's potholes with any major project. Um, mm -hmm. I think that the biggest pothole is turning on uh, open notes and not um, not communicating effectively with the clinicians who are affected, right? So if you have mm -hmm. thousands of doctors in the organization, then suddenly you flip it and no one knows about it, well, they're going to not change the way or think about consciously that patients now have easier access to their notes. We have to acknowledge, of course, that the you know medical records, health information management, release of information has always been true since 2000 and, I mean, 1970, right? Patients have always had access to, to request their records. We're just making it easier than it was before. Even with our patient portal, regardless, and before um, open notes and before the information blocking goes into effect on November 2nd, patients can always click a button and say, I'd request a copy of my progress of, of my entire chart. And most of the chart, the health information management staff will go through and create a long hundreds of pages PDF and deliver it to the patient. That's been true for us for nearly a decade. And it's not really been an issue. So despite all the teeth gnashing of, oh, this is going to bring bring the sky down, you know, patients have had access and been able to get that PDF within a day or two. 
and read whatever they want in their medical record. So it's not a huge change. We're just making it more convenient. And it's maybe the next step of the High Tech Act, right? Right. Um, if you were uh, advising uh, doctors in my organization who are going to be facing open notes uh, next week or the week after, are there two or three solid tips that you would give to them when documenting in an open notes environment? Yeah. So um, actually, on the you know, funny you should mention it, the, my, the, my latest uh, blog post uh, this week was uh, including a document that we've created a one pager called How to Write an Open Note. Um, the mm-hmm. first thing is to reassure clinicians that the vast majority of patients don't expect wording changes. That if you just release the note the way you've written it, even if it has terminology, because you need to be medically precise. We're not asking people to rewrite everything in layperson language and be less precise. Uh, we're, we're saying that, you know, you should be aware that patients will be looking. They potentially might be Googling the words to understand what they mean. But patients mm-hmm. really appreciate the native words as they go. One of the quotes I heard from a patient was, you know, you don't need to write, create a, a USA Today version of your note. We're fine reading the Wall Street Journal version of, of my progress note. That's what I find most valuable because I can take that and say, I own the part of the record and I can give it to the next doctor so that they can understand you know, how to best take care of me. Now, having said that, um, there are a couple of tips, right? So in, in this, the, the top ones that I would suggest are, you know, be careful of possibly pejorative wording, you know, examples like highly anxious drug abusing patient, you might be more neutral about it. Patient uses injection drugs, for example, or mm-hmm. the refuses, patient refuses to take his pills. Well, you know, find out why. Do they have trouble uh, affording it? Do they have, uh, they have been non-adherent to therapy or they've had difficulty tolerating the medication? Try to be, you know, think about being the recipient of that and saying, well, you know, the patient has had difficulty. And I think that's more neutral than patient refuses. Um, there's possibly misunderstood wording. Everyone's worried about the, the abbreviation SOB for shortness of breath. <laughs> right. Else, so people are worried about fu, you know, for follow up being <laughs> so. You know, many of our EHRs have tools for auto expanding abbreviations, and I and I do as well. So if I happen to be typing sob, it will automatically expand to the full word, or fu automatically expands to the word follow up. Or if you're doing speech recognition, there's no reason for abbreviations. Um, behavioral health is another gotcha topic. We will be releasing all primary care progress notes and a significant fraction of primary care is behavioral health. And if you've had conversations with the patient about depression, suicidality, anxiety, there's no reason to redact that from your record. You can certainly just uh, describe that. And then on the other hand, if you have disagreements about you know, the patient's paranoia, um, maybe you can uh, avoid the actual word uh, or the personality disorder descriptions and just state, you know, a quote of what, what the patient tells you. It's equally informative to say, quote, patient states, quote, there's a transmitter in my tooth. It talks to me, close quote. You know, do you need any mm-hmm. than that for the next clinician to understand what's going on? And then finally, empathy, teamwork, and support. I, I find that there are opportunities as you write in the progress note to say something like, you know, the patient has been working hard on their weight loss. And um, their their weight loss has everything to do with their knee arthritis. And they seem to be doing better by walking regularly. I I will look forward to supporting the patient as they, you know, make these behavior changes. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take much to say something that patients will go, I can connect with my doctor. So it's an opportunity. Right. 
So I know this is a this is the stock answer when we talk about opening notes uh, to doctors uh, to the question about changing documentation is you don't have to change the way you write notes. But tell me about your observations over the past decade and going forward with a larger population of doctors. Do you think that there's going to be a migration or is there a natural migration towards more patient-friendly documentation kind of as you just suggested? Well, I, absolutely. I, I think that, um, you know, the, the when I was training, right, the medical record is for the doctor and for no one else, or may, maybe occasionally it's used for billing. And, and so, all right, so then you have one audience. Well, no, actually, just kidding. It is for used for billing. So now you have two audiences. And now, you know, now the patient's going to read it and you have three audience. How many people do you have to write for? It's, it's uh, a bit of a challenge. But I find that, you know, it's, it's not that hard to write for patients because really we're here for the patient. And in fact, one of the innovations that I've done in my own practice, I've tried to convince my colleagues to come along with me, is that I do use speech recognition. And the innovation that I love is using speech recognition in the exam room. Um, I'll, I'll tell you that I tried an experiment a number of years ago, and I'll tell you the parts that were spectacular failures and the parts that were were very successful, which was the, the spectacular failure is speech recognition trying to replicate the physical exam in the HPI mm. and the history of presence. And so for, for the patient to have, and you to have a conversation and then you have to say, okay, stop talking because now I'm going to talk to the computer. And I would say things like patient state that his uncle has had hypertension for many years. And, and the patient would say, no, no, not my uncle, my grandfather. And the, and the computer would say, no, no, not my uncle, my grandfather. I'm like, listen, you have to stop talking. It's my turn right now. <laughs> this is really an awful thing to try to capture during an interview while you're trying to discover the patient history to also at the same time try to capture speech. So I stopped doing that. Physical exam, right? I'm, my hands are busy examining the patient. I don't have time to sit at the computer and do that. However, the part where I'm doing speech recognition for the assessment and plan in the room, which is already a monologue, mm -hmm. um, incredibly powerful. So sitting in the room, having my speech mic open, and then saying to the patient, all right, this is going to sound a little weird because as I'm talking, I'm formatting it for the computer. But hey, you get to take this home with you because the typing is done. And look on the screen, isn't it cool? The computer types for me as I'm talking. And that's wow. half of the cool patient. Like, wow, your words come out right there. So I will say, for example, um, I'll, I'll, I'll do this right into the after visit summary. I'll say, you know, assessment and recommendations, colon, new line. Numeral one period, high blood pressure. Congratulations, your blood pressure has been below 135 over 85 consistently for the past month, period. This means the metoprolol and a hydrochlorothiazide are working, period. No change on either of these doses. I've refilled them and sent them to the pharmacy, period. New paragraph. He will call me if he has any trouble with, you know, the following things. In fact, I've changed the tense of my wording, and sometimes I'll say, you and I have agreed that you'll let me know if you have trouble with getting out and walking for 30 minutes every day, period. New paragraph. And I would turn off the mic and say, does that make sense? Do I need to clarify anything? No, you got it? Good. And I would turn it back on. New paragraph, numeral two. And continue. By the time I'm done, I will print this off on the after-visit summary, hand it to them, and they're like, you have everything you've said. I'm going to take home, and that's for my records. It, it works very well. That's beautiful. I think I um, – since the, I guess, update a year or two ago when the AVS got better in Epic – my uh, my after visit summary is actually better than my impression in the chart, which is really embarrassing to admit. But um, since you brought it up, I mean, do you how do you see open notes? I mean, how does it change the AVS? I mean, uh, I, I think I understood what you just said, but is, is are these going to merge into one, or is there any point in having the two, or what? 
that um, I've not thought of that. That's actually a good point. Do we need the AVS anymore if the patient's entire note is available to them consistently? That's a good point. We we probably don't. Um, Liz Salmi, who you and I know on Twitter right. and other places, uh, actually put up a fantastic comparison of saying, here's my AVS, here's my doctor's mm-hmm. I saw and, that. and it's yeah. it's night and day. You know, on the ADS for lots of doctors, it says you were seen today. Here are your vital signs. Um, let us know if you have any other questions. You're going to get a blood test today. And then on the other hand, the doctor's entire progress note talks about patient is not doing well. She's suffering with this. Her brain, you know, thing is getting worse. And this is what we're going to do with it. It's like night and day between the two. But if we're going to be open notes across the board, um, there won't be any difference, I think, between the two. And um, there won't be any need, I think, for a particular ABS because it ought to be all in the open progress note. Um, right. So, I, yeah, that's a good point. Now, I'll just say technologically, for those who are interested in trying this out today, um, for example, in our electronic health record, which is EPIC, the patient instructions section is what I was dictating into with my speech. And then there is a hyperlink called dot pat instruct that will, um, hype, will link the entire AVS in back into um, my progress note. So that becomes one one speech effort becomes both the ABS and the assessment and plan section of my progress note. So both are the same. They don't have to retype it. And that works very well. I want to get that, maybe get that from you afterwards. That sounds uh, brilliant. CG, let me follow up on this idea of how quickly this is happening and the fact that we're doing this during the middle of a major contentious presidential election. Notes and labs go forward on or public facing or patient facing on November 2nd. Hospital systems, as you are aware, have spent a great deal of time focused on the law and focused on compliance. One thing that I notice is I think we're, we're, we're the second wave is that we're, we're not really preparing our doctors for this kind of transparency or more importantly, our patients uh, so maybe you could comment on that. And I know you generated a brilliant white paper on helping people have these critical conversations with patients. So can you comment on how we need to prepare doctors and patients? Wow. That's two major questions in one. Thank you. Uh, let me start with the patient-facing yeah. one, which is uh, that uh, I'm finishing up uh, wording for a, a one-pager that I'm planning on having our, all of our clinics hand out to patients as they get there blood test ordered or their radiology study ordered. And um, one of the things that we're talking about, in fact, we're discussing this with um, our EHR vendor, Epic, is can we construct a way for patients to be able to pre-select ahead of time? Because, you know, just like doctors, there's an entire spectrum of what doctors Mm -hmm. feel and think about any particular topic. I imagine patients have very different approaches into how they would like to see their information, notwithstanding the fact that the Fed or the Feds have sort of in, enforced that we're going to release everything immediately, I could imagine some fraction of patients could be anxious or worried about viewing their potentially very serious test results online without the support of commentary or discussion with their provider, um, and that we, we think that patients might appreciate a checkbox, which they don't have today of being able to say, yes, I, I want to see my test results immediately as soon as they're available, or no, I would prefer to wait until my doctor contacts me and explains the results to me in, in some way. And and so that's what I've actually put on this information sheet is to ask patients, you know, um, you can choose when to see your results. Mm. At UC Health, we believe in building trust and better relationships by sharing your test results with you without delay. However, 
you might decide whether do you prefer to view test results right away and you're comfortable with either family members who can explain results to you or you can search the internet or perhaps you're already familiar with your chronic illness and you have no issues. Or perhaps you might prefer to hear from us before viewing the test results. So you know, t- take a pause and think about you know, what you're most comfortable with. And maybe you do want to wait a few days rather than viewing on your own, because we will consistently reach out to you with our interpretation of those results. So we're, we're giving this out as a handout for patients to sort of take away and think about before they get a ping on their app or their website to say, hey, you have new results, come, come look. And then furthermore, another idea that we had was the idea that you know, best practice, in, especially in chronic illness or in mon- routine monitoring tests, why don't we arrange for patients to get their tests done just before their provider's appointment so that you do the test and the next day you have. Mm-hmm. So there's no, you know, online seeing it yourself. There's a come in and let's talk about it together. And we'll, we'll, you know, what's better than an in-person visit to discuss test results. Now it does take some organizing to do that yeah. before three months from now, please come in a day before your appointment. So you'll do the test and we can talk about it together. That it works great when that works out that way. I think you bring up this point about the spectrum of uh, interest in transparency by the patient population. Uh, Over the past decade, I've worked with a number of very uh, vocal patient advocates who, and they have one view of of how much they want, and it tends to be quite forward-thinking. I've always found that with the parents in my clinic, and I'm a pediatrician or pediatric gastroenterologist, not all of them want that total total level of uh, transparency. So I think this idea of being able to grade or select what you want to get is, uh, is important. Yeah, I, I agree. And so we, we have homework to do technologically in addition to culturally. So in terms of EHRs, if we could just talk about EHRs, if, if, if we look back um, over the past couple of years since uh, we've seen the rise of EHRs in hospital systems and the move from paper to uh, electronic health records, there is a prevailing narrative that um, the EHR is responsible for our burnout. And it's um, my friend Z-Dog, he really kind of rails on Epic on all the problems with Epic. And is Epic really that bad? Or what do you think is behind this? Um, Well, I I, I think there's um, a ton of underlying issues that sort of uh, surface and are personified by the electronic health record. There are um, tons of regulatory requirements. There are bill requirements. There are, you know, legal requirements. You know, the the old statement, uh, which is going to change in in January of the coming year, which is if it's not in the, if it's not in your note, it didn't happen. And so clinicians then, whether it's from medical legal defensive stance, say, well, I'm just going to put everything possible in my note so that I'm covered. That's one defense that uh, worsens clinician burnout because you're feeling like you have to be inclusive. Then there's the legal defense of, you know, what, what defensive medicine are you practicing? Did you get every possible test result so the patient can't come and sue you later? And then there's the billing of, well, you know, the feds are going to come after you and reduce the amount that you're billing and call your billing, your, your progress note fraudulent because, uh, you know, how dare you bill for a level four when the work that you did was clearly a level three. And so, well, sure, I'm going to stuff my note full of everything so that I can justify my billing. So all of these things have been sort of, um, 
A, against readability of notes, and B, against the, the usefulness and the burnout of clinicians who have to parse through 17 pages of a progress note when there's really two or three paragraphs that I really want to know out of here. And, and every, quote, everyone knows, CT, that the EHR you're pushing on us ruins healthcare. It ruins it. Single-handedly, I hear ruining healthcare in this country. And I, I, well, you can say you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. But but you're, what, what we try to do, and and you you know some folks may know that at UC Health we've constructed a, a program called the Sprint, uh, where we're actually taking a team of people and diving deep for two weeks into each individual practice to try to transform their use of the electronic health record. And that has to do with training efficiency tools, teaching people to write more effective, briefer notes, and sort of revamping teamwork. Because there are ways that you can use your team members to reduce work effort for everyone, right? Why send them a message back and forth seven times if a once a day huddle for, for 10 minutes allows you to clear the schedule for the rest of the day or figure out a, a different way to communicate so that there's less uh, computer work for everybody. Um, so we've been pushing on that and had quite a bit of success at reducing burnout in that way. But you're right, in, in, a, in, in a clinician who's facing the EHR um, without this level of support, you could sit here and go, there's so many things that I, I think I have to do that potentially you don't have to do. And, and you can misinterpret the, the underlying intent of an EHR. And, you know, I think we kind of feel like sometimes that these decisions about health IT are sort of forced upon us by the CMIO. We, we at the ground level in the clinics, get this, you know, get this tool and we have to use and adapt to it. Um, so feeling empowered in some ways is important. Uh, one project at, I think it's Pacific Healthcare in Hawaii, they had a project called Getting Rid of Stupid Stuff that was written up in the New England Journal of Medicine about two years ago. You're probably familiar with that, but it's a, a, a program where you can look at something that's, that's redundant and dumb in the electronic health record, appeal to this committee, and then it, it gets fixed immediately. So feeling like we're part of, of building things is important as well. Right. You bet. Yeah. And we found that with our sprint program, every time we go into a clinic, they point out things that were like, we had no idea it was right. this way. Let's, let's get this fixed. And people feel like, you know, uh, for the first time, health IT, someone in IT actually cares. We, right. we usually send in right. complaints and it, it doesn't come back for months if ever, but boy, I make a complaint here. And during the sprint, you turn around and you fix it by tomorrow morning. That's incredible. That's amazing. I feel empowered. Right. So that's been very gratifying. So I guess initially with electronic health records, it was a matter of getting the paper record onto an electronic format. And now we're kind of looking for looking to draw information out of the EHR to improve outcomes. Um, what's the next big thing? What are we going to see in the next decade with electronic health records? What's next? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I, I, there's a there's a talk I give on on transformation versus translation, uh, and this was from several EHRs ago, where. Uh, there's a picture of um, a horse-drawn carriage, right? And uh, one of the first vehicles actually looks exactly like a horse-drawn carriage, except in place of the stirrup for the horse is a stirrup-like device to drive the vehicle, right? right? And that's all people have is a translation from the old way of locomotion to the new way. Right. And the wheels are exactly the same. But boy, could you could you translate that to you know a Formula One car or a minivan? Or you know what what things evolved into later on, and that's kind of what I think we're facing is we're still sort of in the Model T level of um, transition from paper to electronic, 
And, and I, I think that we do need to think about information much more broadly, right? Instead of, well, you can write the progress note more quickly because you can speech recognize or you can use a template. We ought to be thinking about how are we managing information in a way to improve the care, not only of this patient, but of populations or to spot trends or to predict deterioration. And we're starting to do things like that. For example, our we have a virtual health center that we stood up now that uh, we have ICU nurses and physicians whose only job during that shift is to watch for prediction, predictive algorithms and future sepsis warning signs hours. We're finding it, uh, we're able to spot symptoms up to four hours to eight hours prior to um, frontline clinicians spotting the deterioration. And we've been able to move uh, time to antibiotics up, up forward about 30 minutes and time to fluids up forward about an hour. And that we think has resulted in over 77 saves, less mortality in, in sepsis this past year. Wow. Um, and so, you know, this is where we think we're going is if we capture the data in an effective way, not just blabs of text, um, then maybe we can take that data and make it useful in ways that we can't really even imagine right now. So what was once a place for documenting episodic interactions with the healthcare system. This is now maybe evolving as kind of a real-time dashboard, right? Right, right, right. Or even spotting hidden patterns. You know, uh, I, I remember reading a, a book about uh, Target, for example, uh, being able to say that uh, they found a way that uh, of spotting uh, patients developing type 1 diabetes based on their uh, enormous nationwide database uh, because they realize that uh, uh, people coming into their stores, once they find a detergent they like, they never switch. But they, they were able to find that on patients who were later diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, they would switch detergent brands for no apparent reason. Mm-hmm. And it turns out in hindsight that in those cases that with type 1 diabetes early in the course, your sense of smell changes. And then you go, there's something wrong with my detergent. I better get something else. So how interesting that people can use these larger databases to spot sort of weird, interesting patterns that we would have never come across in episodic care. So the CMIO role traditionally has been uh, for large systems, uh, being the chief EPIC officer. Obviously, there's new technologies emerging in healthcare, new information technologies. Is this the role of the CMIO evolving or changing or morphing? Yeah, I, I think we've moved from, you know, chief deployment officer, convincing your mm-hmm. colleague to give up pen and pencil to sort of innovating with the information that's, um, you know, bulging at the seams. We're developing lots more big data. And what are we going to do with it? And how can we attach this to additional technologies to try to continue to push the envelope on improving care? And uh, it's really an exciting time. So I referenced uh, that amazing white paper that you uh, had constructed. And I will tell you in our own system, I was part of our working group for uh, Cures Rule, and this got passed around and said, this is really good. And uh, I looked at the fine print, and your name was in a very small font at the top. So uh, you're famous in, in, in one way here. Um, if people want to find out more about you and this white paper and um, the stuff that you're innovating at UC with regard to cures, rule, and transparency, where can they go? Well, I, I reference back to the at the top of the hour where we talked about uh, my blog. I've been blogging weekly for about three years now. Um, usually it's just me and my mom reading it. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> I'm happy to have additional readers. 
But uh, most of it's about informatics. Sometimes it's about leadership. Sometimes it's about the books I'm reading. But uh, I leave it all out there uh, once a week. We'll, we'll check that ctlin.blog. Uh, and it's, that's, old, that's the old blogger platform, right? The retro. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I use uh, uh, WordPress is my publisher. Oh, the WordPress. Okay, sorry. Yeah, it's been great. It's been great. Very good. So CT, Dr. C.T. Lynn, thank you very much for your generosity with your time. Uh, this is a crazy busy time for you as a CMIO, and uh, we're embarking on this uh, new phase in patient empowerment and information management, and we appreciate your time to help put this all into context for us. It's my pleasure, and thank you for having me on. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health. Thank you.